Well, Father, would you show us today the power of the cross and take your word and by your grace, Lord, would you just take the gospel and impact us today as a congregation. Those who need to hear it as though for the first time again and and, uh, confess and repent of their sin today and let the gospel change them. Those of us who've been mucking in the world, may we be reminded of the purity and the power of the gospel to turn our hearts back to you and And would you just uh, change us, use your word to empower us and confront us, and uh, continue to do your work of sanctifying us in the power of Christ and in the power of the cross. We pray in Jesus' name now as we open our Bibles with expectant hearts. Amen. Well, don't you love it when the gospel interrupts a life? Some of you remember a story that I've told here before. Um, In um, 1982-83, actually it was 83-84, I did an internship at a a large Bible church in Huntington, West Virginia, and the senior pastor at the time was uh, a great preacher. He's now in Muskegon, Michigan, named Bill Rudd. He highly impacted my life during that internship year. And I remember that in his desk drawer, he had a hunting knife. And he told the story about how years before, in his first church, he had been doing some visitation and uh, had gone to the home of some individuals that he needed to visit. As he came away from their house, on the street, he noticed some other homes. And um, evidently, through the compelling uh, leading of the Holy Spirit, he just had a sense that he needed to go up to this house and knock on the door and, uh, and talk to the people. It was uh, towards the end of the day. It was time to go home. He had completed a day of work. He didn't really need to do more that day. And yet, as he walked on the sidewalk, he was just compelled. And so he yielded to the Spirit's prompting, went up to the door, and realized that the inner door was ajar. There was a storm door. He knocked on the door, and no one came to the door. He began to knock and he thought, well, there's no one here, he'll just leave. And then, in an unusual way, unlike what he would normally do, he he investigated further. He opened the door and began to call out and he heard a voice, said, come in. And he went in the kitchen and this is the story and I don't have it, I'm not embellishing. And a gentleman was in his kitchen with the hunting knife that Pastor Rudd has in his desk drawer, it did back then. Whether he still does or not, I don't know. And that man was sitting on a kitchen chair in his kitchen with that hunting knife, ready to thrust it up inside his chest cavity and commit suicide. And right about the time he was ready to fall on that knife and take his own life in despair, the knock came on the door from Pastor Rudd. And Bill Rudd led that man to Christ in his kitchen. Don't you love it when a sinner and the gospel intersect? And there's supposed to be sparks that fly. Do you know that? It reminds me of a little man that we learned about in Sunday school a long time ago. You don't have to turn there. This story's in Luke's Gospel in chapter 19. Uh, Remember that Jesus was creating quite a hubbub. And He was coming into Jericho. And there was a little man. The Bible says He was a little man. And He was a despised man. And He was a disgusting man. And out of curiosity, he followed the crowd and he wanted to get a look at Jesus. Is there anything in you that wants to look at Jesus? you have space in your life for Jesus today? 
And that little man, do you remember his name? Say it. Zacchaeus. He did what? He climbed up in a tree. He climbed up in a tree for the Savior he wanted to see. And what happened? Our Lord came, and in his omniscience, what did he do? He looked up and he said, and maybe he was pretty conspicuous hanging on that branch. Zacchaeus, come down. Zacchaeus, you don't know it, but today I'm coming to your house. Zacchaeus, you don't know it, but today is the beginning of the rest of your life. Zacchaeus, everything in your life is going to change. Today, today is our appointment, Zacchaeus. And he goes to Zacchaeus' home, it says. And it doesn't tell us the exchange of conversation. But do you remember what kind of baptism John and then Jesus came? Do you remember in the... the proclaiming their ministries, what did they come? Crying out for repentance of sin. And so somewhere in Zacchaeus' kitchen, our Lord shared his gospel, his life with Zacchaeus, and immediately Zacchaeus was repentant, began to talk about who he was going to repay, how he was going to repay, because... When you encounter the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is our sin bearer, he's taken our sin upon himself, he gives us our righteousness through which to live, everything changes. And that reminds me of our verse that we need to make sure everyone at Fellowship Bible Church has memorized. I say it often, let's make sure we know it together. It's 2 Corinthians 5 17. Just listen. It's very simple. We'll say it together and we'll learn it. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This is the NIV. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Let me say that again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Let's say that together. Ready? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, the rest of the verse goes like this. The old has gone, the new has come. Don't you love that? How many of you had a lot of old that needed to go bye-bye? How many of you could tell your story this morning about how the gospel interrupted your life and took a whole lot of garbage and put it behind you, transferred it over to Christ, and there has been a new process going on in your life. Let's say it again. Let's say the reference. Ready? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Let's say it one more time together, and then we're going to work through our sections. Ready? We have time for this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Ready? This group over here, ready? Say it with me. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now add these voices to these voices. Keep saying it. Okay, they're a little slower over here. We've got to keep them going. Ready? Together. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now just take your breath and catch your breath. Let me put us on pause a minute. You know that idea that the new has come. 
in the, in the grammar, in the grammar of our Bible, it becomes clear that the verb form there is that there was, it's in the perfect tense. It means that there was a point in time when the change was made and the ongoing change continues. Okay, there was a point in time when the old went, the new came, and then the new continues to, to grow in us. All right? That's sanctification. That's Christ at work in us through his gospel by his grace, isn't it? Okay, this section, you guys ready? You can, gives you a chance. I did this for Jimmy Routson's sake over here. Okay, get ready. Okay, here we go. Ready? 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Together, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Praise God. Praise God. The gospel interrupts our lives and turns us into something we were not before we knew Christ. You see, there's no such thing in the New Testament... There's no such thing in our Bibles as somebody who, by God's grace, encounters the gospel, receives the message, repents of their sin, and stays the same. There's no such thing as that. And so this morning, as we turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we continue through 1 Timothy, we have the Apostle Paul slipping into his personal testimony in essence, as a weight of evidence against the false teachers. Remember what we've been talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The Apostle Paul went up to Miletus. He wrote a personal letter to young Timothy, who's the pastor, as it were, in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, the, false, the, the leadership has skewed. They've gotten off base in their doctrine and their theology. It's easy to do. They didn't guard the faith. Wolves have come in from without. Those from within have tried to surface and take over and preach a gospel that the Apostle Paul says is jibber-jabber. It's worthless. And evidently it had something to do with the keeping of the law. And it was a move away from grace. That unmerited favor that we have the forgiveness of sin through Christ alone by no merit of our own. And they'd gotten away from that. And remember when the Apostle Paul talked about the law, these guys, they're, they're vain babblers as they try to teach about the law, but they don't even know what they're talking about. And then the word law triggered in him. But the law is good when it's used properly. And then he goes on, and let's take a look. Put your eyes down on your page, 1 Timothy chapter 1. And he talks about why the law is needed, and it's for the unrighteous, not for the righteous. And then it confronts us with our sinfulness. And it demands of us someone who can come and be righteousness for us. And so he then looks at verse 11 and he says that, and this, it conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Notice that last phrase, which he entrusted to me. And that trips in Paul's mind his own personal testimony. Immediately in his thinking, it must have gone right to the road at Damascus. When God interrupted him with his gospel, he entrusted the gospel to me and he even called me to be a specialized preacher of this gospel and of his grace to who? The Jews or the Gentiles was Paul called? Say Gentiles. He was called to preach to the Gentiles. Peter preached to the Jews. Paul preached to the Gentiles. The gospel, listen to me, is for all people everywhere. There are no barriers which the gospel cannot tear down. All people everywhere need the gospel. It's the central part of all that we are. It's the story of the Bible. 
God-pursuing men who don't deserve to be pursued. That's the gospel. Well, the Apostle Paul slips into his testimony, and as he breaks down his personal testimony, the first thing you're going to see, number one today, is that his story now, in the present, as he writes Timothy, is a life, number one, a life marked by humility. We're going to see, number two, that he had a past scarred by hostility, and he's going to camp on, number three, the hope of all humanity, which is the gospel itself. He starts out his testimony with reminding himself out loud in this letter to Timothy that, number one, his was a life marked by humility. He is so humble in how he responds to what God has done in his life. That's the way it ought to be, isn't it? You know, when you've been far from God, and when you recognize how lost you are, and then you realize that God, through Christ, through the cross, has spanned the gap, He has bridged the gulf, you don't walk around and say, look at me, I'm the man, I found Jesus. You say, I'm so cool, I figured out, I figured out the way to get to heaven. I'm the man. You don't do that, you don't get it if you do that, right? You don't get what Ephesians 1 says and 2 says. You are dead, man. You are dead in trespasses and sin. But God, by His grace, woke you up. And one day you realized, I do not have it together. And what does that do? It just, it just brings in you this, this humility, this brokenness before God. And then that's what leads to worship, ultimately, isn't it? And we sing songs like, Were it not for grace... I'd be wandering down some empty, lonely road somewhere, trying to figure out on my own how to get to heaven and missing the whole thing. Were it not for grace. Well, Paul talks about his life and he, is, he speaks with humility. Let's read our text. I thank, verse 12, to 1 Timothy 1, 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, Appointing me to his surface. He's not focusing on himself. He's amazed that God has done this in him. Even though, verse 13, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And then he ends up worshiping in verse 17. Now to the King Eternal... Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You want to see how Paul did it in his mind. This is somewhat typical, as I referenced last week, of the Apostle Paul's writing style. He'll get going on something, and then a word trips a thought, and then he goes that direction, and then he hits another word that trips a thought, and then he goes that way. And so the progression has been Timothy 
confront those guys. They're preaching no gospel at all. In fact, they, lo- they long to be esteemed as teachers of the law, but it's jibber-jabber. It doesn't even make sense. By the way, the law is a good thing, but it's for those who are lost. It, it's, it's for the unrighteous, not the righteous. And by the way, that gospel will change your life. The blessed God, that gospel that was entrusted to me, oh yeah, that's my road to Damascus. And I, I just can't believe that God would come to me And I thank our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice three things that he's thankful for. Three spiritual realities in Paul's life for which he is grateful. Three spiritual realities for which Paul is grateful in this attitude of humility. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. There's the attitude of humility that comes through. I just thank God. I thank Christ Jesus specifically, our Lord. Number one, who has done what? Who has given me strength. He's given me strength. I just keep going. I didn't think I could do it. Why do we know that we think Paul didn't think he could do it? Do you remember his story? Sometime after his conversion on the road to Damascus, he had an issue. He had a problem, didn't he? It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You don't have to turn there. But remember what he said? He said, I prayed three times that God would remove this thorn in my flesh that was given to me from Satan. He says, I can't handle it. Three times. I take it that at least three times he specifically fasted and prayed and specifically went to God to ask him to remove this out of his life so that he would have the strength to minister. And with it, he felt like he could not do what God had called him to do. I take it that's the attitude that 2 Corinthians 12 is written. And you remember what happened? He said, three times I pleaded with God. Do you remember God's answer? He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And my strength is made perfect in your weaknesses. Paul, I've allowed this to happen because... I am a God who takes weak, puny things and I display my power through that. And Paul, we know by the testimony of of the churches that he, particularly Corinth, was criticized. This guy can't speak very well. He doesn't look very good. He's not at all what we expected him to be. He's just this little man that has problems and he comes and Paul says, but I came to you with the power of the gospel. No strength of his own. You remember what Paul concluded, 2 Corinthians 12, that passage with? When God told him, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Paul said that when I am weak, then I'm what? Then I'm strong. Because then I'm really dependent on God. Then it's his word that's working in me. And so the first thing that Paul says in the passage here, he says... I just thank Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength. I I can keep going. How many times was he beat down? How many times was he beat with rods? How many times with nine uh, lashes and nine tail, or the, the whip, however many tails it had, and shipwrecked and thrown on the city trash heap for dead? At least once or twice, God miraculously just picked him up off the trash heap and he evidently was completely well instantaneously. The man was beat down. 
He talked about the weight of the ministry, the burden of the ministry. But he said, I thank God, number one, for giving me strength. He gives me strength. I can do this. Secondly, the second thing for which a spiritual reality for which Paul was grateful is his service. Thankful for his strength, but that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. I don't think Paul ever got over the fact of what he was before the gospel and what he became about the gospel and with the gospel and after the gospel changed his life. And he just says, I just can't believe it. But Timothy, I thank God for the strength to minister. And secondly, I thank God that I'm able to just be in his service. I was able to be in his service. Do you remember what it was like some of, this is a guy illustration, but do you remember what it's like to play pickup basketball on the playground? Or football. We used to play football. I grew up in the suburbs of South Chicago in these empty lots where houses hadn't been built. The kids would swarm there and we'd play ball all year. We'd shovel the snow off there and play. Or play in the snow. Year-round, play ball. And you know what it's like when you're not the best athlete and and there's a guy that you really like and he likes for you to be on his team and his team always wins. And do you remember like when we played softball, especially, they throw a bat, do the hands over. Do you ever do that one? And then we'd change. If, you, if your hand didn't turn out, because then you get to pick first, you go up the bat and the guy whose hand comes up underneath the cap of the baseball bat, he gets to pick first. And then somebody would holler out, Capsies. Capsies meant you had to hold the, the, the end of the handle by your, and the other guy got to kick it and if he could kick it out of his hand, then he got to choose first. Okay, it's good stuff. And you're standing there. This isn't in the Bible. And you're standing there, and they're choosing the team. And it, back and forth, and you're like, you're the last guy. But finally, the one guy says, I want Marceau on my team. Just to be on the team. I'm just thankful that I got chosen to be on his team. That's the Apostle Paul's attitude here. I'm just really glad that he chose me. He counted me faithful. An unfaithful man. He counted me faithful and put me in his service for the gospel. Paul's not boasting. Paul is in all humility, sharing his testimony with Timothy. The first thing he's rejoicing in is the spiritual reality of the strength that God gives, the spiritual reality of what it means to him to be in service. The third thing he talks about is his great salvation. Number three, his salvation. His life that was marked by humility ends up talking about his salvation. Look what he says. He talks about being a blasphemer and a persecutor. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he says, I was shown, in verse 13, I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy. And then he says something kind of curious. Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, His grace then was poured out on me abundantly. And with that grace came faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. When you know Christ Jesus, your life is characterized by faith, walking by faith, not by sight, and by a love that God gives you, and a Christ-like love that you don't have if you don't have Christ, comes from the mercy and grace that saved you. It ends up in a life of love and faith, and faith and love. Let's talk about that little curious phrase there where the Apostle Paul says, when I think about my salvation, one of the things that I think about is that he interrupted me on that road to Damascus that day because... I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And it's, it's like this. It's like, 
I didn't really know what I was doing. And so God gave me a chance to get it right. You know what I think he's talking about? He, let's read a little bit more about his salvation. Make sure I haven't forgotten something I wanted to add to that. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown uh, the very reason that I was uh, uh, shown mercy, he says. For that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience and his example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. It's almost like because the Apostle Paul was doing what he was doing that God said, okay, I'll save you. And that's kind of weird. And that puzzled me a little bit. And here's what I think it means. I think that Paul is saying... And you remember Paul's testimony from Philippians where he said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, man. You know what it means? It means that he had the Torah, the law of Moses, memorized word for word. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He he had it memorized. He could tell you anything about the law. He was a specialist in the law. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was very proud of his religious religious pedigree. And he was very self-righteous. And when he persecuted the church, he thought, you see, he went around as a missionary of destruction and everywhere the gospel was being preached, he tore it down and destroyed it. We'll talk about that in a second specifically. And he's saying, I did that because I believed I was doing the work of God. I really believed that I was God's man. I really believed that everything I was doing was for him. And I didn't even know that I was messing up. I didn't even know. So it wasn't, here's what I think it means. He was an unenlightened sinner. Unenlightened sinners are the kind of people that God saves. And let me keep talking here because this is kind of strange. So an enlightened sinner is somebody, what I mean by the light of the gospel has come into their life and they totally understand it. They know. They know that Jesus is the Christ. They know there's only one way to heaven. They know the power of the cross. They know it. And what do they do? They go... And they make obscene gestures. And they curse God. And they don't care. And they walk away. That's a person who's ready to sin unto death. That's a person who is really in scary position. Now, I believe as long as there's breath in your body, there's hope for your salvation. But when you are enlightened with the gospel, that's why it's a little scary for some people here today, maybe. You sit under the gospel. You know the gospel. You know the truth. And in your conscience, the Spirit of God pokes you and you know it's true. And you keep walking out and you say, bah, humbug, I don't want any of that stuff. It's for sissies. You might even do like people I've heard who say, I know it and God can just send me to hell. I don't care. See, Paul wasn't that way. Paul was not, I know it's the truth and God can just send me to hell anyway. Paul was like, I want to please God. I want to serve God. And I'm going to go burn down the houses of Christians because they're wrong and I'm zealous for his law. And Paul says, then he interrupted me. And because I was ignorant and unbelief, he was humbled by the fact that God would come and interrupt him with the gospel and change his life. And there it was. And Paul was so moved by the reality of his own salvation and that God would show him mercy and grace. Mercy, what is that? 
What did Paul deserve for killing Christians? What did Paul deserve for for being in the flesh and trying to keep the law and trying to save himself through good deeds? What did he deserve? He did not deserve the goodness of God. He didn't deserve heaven. For all have sinned, the Bible says. And you fall short of the glory of God. And all of your righteousnesses, every good thing you can do, are like filthy, filthy, nasty rags that you would never touch And if you had to, you'd put a rubber glove on to touch it. That's what your goodness looks like in the eyes of God. He's so holy, holy, holy. We sang it this morning. That your righteousness is as filth, vomit. And so the wages of that sin is death. That's what we deserve. But God comes and in His mercy, He does what? Here's mercy, get it right. It is God holding back a wrath that we deserve. It is God holding back a judgment that we deserve for our sinfulness. Mercy is when God does not give us what we really deserve. And Paul says, by His mercy, He held back. He mercied me. And then He poured out His grace on me. And grace is the other side of the coin. Grace is when, by no merit of my own, by nothing that I deserve, God says, tell you what, Jason Stein, I'm going to give you my son. And everything that you've done wrong goes to him and everything he's done right goes to you. Good deal? That's grace. You don't deserve it, buddy. I know you. Your wife's been talking to me. That's not true. That's for all of us, right? We don't deserve it. And so we receive a grace. That's grace. Receiving all of the riches in Christ that I have no merit to. And God says, I'm just going to give it to you. And Paul's stuck on his salvation here. Let's quickly go from his life marked by humility over the strength, the service, and the salvation that are in Christ to his past that was scarred by hostility. Look what it says. He says, verse 13, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Don't you love what he says? He said, I once was this. I used to be this. You know, we have to be careful about talking about what we used to be before Christ. There's not a whole lot of good that comes from mucking around in the past, B.C., before Christ. The shame and the disgrace and the stupidity of sin, it's gone, it's under the blood, it's been wiped from the mind of God, It's buried in the deepest part of the sea. It's as far as the east is from the west from God. If God cannot recall it to mind, God cannot bring it to mind. It's gone. It's been wiped out. Why would I keep bringing it to mind? But Paul touches on it here a little bit. He doesn't go into gross detail and he doesn't glamorize it. But he does make clear, and I think it's a reference to the earlier teaching in chapter 1. He says, I was a blasphemer. I violated the whole first half of the Decalogue. I violated my relationship with God. I was a blasphemer. How was he a blasphemer? He called Jesus Christ anathema. He he wanted to wipe out Christ. And Christ was God in the flesh. And he didn't know it. And he kept cursing Christ and cursing Christians. He was a blasphemer. And then he says, and I was a persecutor and a violent man. I brought violence to them. 
He literally ransacked the homes of Christians. He was present in Acts. We'll not take time to turn there. You probably know the story well. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen was preaching. He calls on them to repent of their sin for what they did, rejecting the prophets and the prophecies of the Old Testament. They gnash their teeth. They run at him. They beat him with rocks into a bloody pulp. They kill him. And Paul, Saul at the time, was standing there giving approval of his death. The word approval means that he was the one in charge who gave the authorization, take him out. Stephen, that precious preacher of the gospel in the early church, And it says, and it just is a powerfully emotional passage there. And it says, godly men came and wept as they buried Stephen. Imagine what it did to the brothers in the gospel. They picked up their, their splattered, broken, bruised, bloodied Stephen, and they carefully put him in a grave for the gospel. And Saul was standing there, good! And then it says, great persecution broke out. And they went house to house. And I take it that they did not knock on the front door. They kicked in the door. They tore up the furniture. They backhanded women and children, grabbed men, killed them on the spot, drug them off to prison, destroyed and burned their property. And Saul says, got that one done. Let's go do another one. And he said, I violated every second half of the Decalogue. I have done everything there is to be a blasphemer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. I have blasphemed him and I have totally not loved my fellow man. I've broken every law. Going back to the law. But the gospel, he says, saved me. His past was scarred by hostility. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was violent. Let's conclude, number three, with the hope of all humanity. The hope of all humanity This is almost a John 3.16-like statement. Do you see it there? He says something that he says five times in the pastorals. In 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, five times he's going to say, he's going to say, this or here is a trustworthy saying. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. I take it that by this time, that the creed and doctrine of the church was defined down enough that this was one of the bullet points off their doctrinal statement that everybody in the church of Jesus accepted as true. Here is a true saying. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Now listen to it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. You know why he thought that? He thought, when you've spit on Jesus... You see, when you've, when you've spit on his church, you've spit on him. When you spit on his people, you spit on him. When you despise God's children, Christians in the early church, when you despise them, you despise the work of the cross. He says it doesn't get any worse than that. You think stealing a car and robbing a bank is bad? I have spit on Jesus. I'm the worst of sinners. But here's a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Praise God. He's in the business of taking despicable, broken, wicked people and by His mercy, holding back, smashing them like a spider 
His mercy holds back his wrath. And then by his grace, he brings you to the cross and he says, let me show you that my son, Jesus in the flesh, came and communicated to you a language you could understand. And that is, he would take your sinfulness upon himself and he would give you his righteousness when by faith you receive that gospel. And this is God's grace in action. Have you received this? Have you acknowledged your sinfulness? Have you allowed the grace of God to come and interrupt you? Or are you holding on to something? Are you one of those scary, enlightened people who knows the gospel and despises it and rejects it? Are you an ignorant person like Paul here today who in your ignorance you just... You never got it before, but now you get it. Listen, God's grace is sufficient for all. Humble your heart. Admit your sinfulness. Get the hunting knife away from your chest. You don't don't have to be hopeless. You don't have to be stupid. You don't have to be on the squirrel cage of the cyclical life of endless stupid sin Enjoying the pleasures for five minutes and then picking yourself up out of the gutter after over and over. Come to Jesus. What is it about Jesus that everybody thinks he's going to ruin their life? What is it about Jesus? He'll give you the power to walk in obedience. And it makes sense. You show me something in the book that doesn't make sense. To love your wife, to pay your bills, to get up in the morning and go to work, to love your neighbor, to take care of your neighbor's dog when he's gone, to put gas in the car for your wife. What doesn't make sense? What is it that's so rotten about this? What is it that's so successful about all the Jesus haters? What is it? Let's bow in prayer. Listen. God is pulling at your heart this morning. Would you bow your head right now and heed the Spirit's call in your chest right now and in your thinking and acknowledge your sinfulness. You're not the worst of sinners. You're not too bad. You're just like Paul. You've just been violating the Ten Commandments all over the place. But that's exactly what it's supposed to do. It's to convict us and show us that only Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Will you admit your sinfulness this morning? And will you put your faith and trust in Christ alone? Will you, as it were, take a backpack of sin off your back and throw it down at the foot of the cross and let Jesus come down off that cross, as it were, and hug you and take a robe of righteousness and put it on you so that from now on, when God sees you, He sees Christ and the goodness of Christ. That's His grace his undeserved, merited favor from Christ. And that alone gives you access to God. That alone guarantees heaven. That alone is what transforms your life. You do it right now in this quiet moment. Come just as you are to God. You can come forward when we sing in a minute if you want to, but right now you can take care of business with God, repenting of your sinfulness, acknowledging His mercy and His grace and the work of Christ on your behalf, allowing His resurrection power to become yours. So, Father, work in us, stir us, challenge us, give us clarity of thought, and may through Your Holy Spirit, 
and an undeniable work go on here in the lives of anybody who, out of ignorance or even out of intent, has been despising you, will you save them before it's everlastingly too late? Help them to realize that you long to receive sinners just as they are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.